I'm so thankful to the Lord for that, that I heard that message that night and it just really gripped my heart. Roxanne worked second shift, which meant getting home late every night. But one evening was different. Instead of her favorite rock station, she found Focus on the Family on the radio. I didn't find out until sometime later that I actually, you know, got saved or born again or, you know, gave my heart to the Lord that night. I just knew that I prayed the prayer at the end. So I just, you know, was probably by that time, almost 1230, it would take me about half of an hour to drive home and just driving in my car, crying and filled with peace and joy and, and just feeling the presence of the Lord. It was wonderful. I'm Jim Daly. Working together, we can save more families like Roxanne's every month. Become a friend to focus on the family and invest in this ministry. Call 800-A-FAMILY or donate at focusonthefamily.com family. Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. Well, it's true. Uh, we're in a bit of a financial fix. But we've been this way for a long time. Well, we wouldn't have these problems if huh. you would just make more money. More money. Or get a second job. Second job. You know, it really doesn't matter how much I make. Uh, You'd find a way to spend it uh, all anyway. Oh, oh, so it's my fault, is it? Yes. Well, what about that new stereo you purchased oh, the last new month without telling me? I told me? you that was for my oh, office. the office. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. but yeah. you're always heard buying more before. clothes, yeah. shoes, well, and makeup computer fit parts, any woman would uh, Excuse me. I mean, come on. Yeah, look at really? those shoes that you got on there. John, that sounds pretty intense, right? It does, yes. (laughs) Hopefully we're not living in that space, but Mm. maybe some are. And money can be a touchy subject for husbands and wives. It always ranks as number one or number two of marital conflict. And today we want to talk about that. Uh, Most, if not all, of the decisions we make usually involve money. Purchase this, don't purchase that. Maybe like a car or maybe like just a vacation or something else you got to do as a couple. Money's involved. It's a part of our everyday lives. We've got to get a handle on it. Yep. And, you know, there's a reason why I think most couples in their wedding vows, say for richer or for poorer, that means something. And uh, today, again, we want to equip you to be able to manage your money in such a way that it reduces, it may not eliminate, but it will reduce conflict in your marriage. Yeah, and Taylor and Megan Kovar are here. Uh, they're authors, speakers, and financial planners who have a passion to help couples and families achieve financial freedom and uh, a peaceful home, which uh, is a good goal, <laughs> and also a thriving marriage. And uh, Taylor and Megan are known as the money couple. They've written a book called The Five Money Personalities, Speaking the Same Love and Money Languages. And you can learn more about the book and our guests at the website. The link is at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Taylor and Megan, welcome to Focus. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, thank you so so much. How did you two get involved in this? I mean, it's not like I don't think you wake up or you get married and say, honey, I got an idea for us. Why don't we become financial uh, coaches and planners? Yeah, it was not an overnight thing. Um, and I am a certified financial planner. So my wife, uh, Megan, she's more of a stay-at-home mom. So she is along for the ride a lot of times, well, on the finance side of things. Um, she's much more the writer, and I'm more the speaker. Um, but she is a tremendous asset when it comes to working with couples. And well, hang on a second. I got, you know, you can lay out the financial plan. Yeah. But if Megan doesn't do it, That's, so you yes. must be a good partner in that when you have agreement on Absolutely. this plan. You, Absolutely. Yeah. We learned early on that we did not speak the same language when it came to money, and we needed a lot of help in order to get on the same page. So this is how some of this was born. 
In fact, we did a little research in the book and found that you mm. you like Mustangs. I I was a I Camaro did. guy. I did like ahead. Mustangs. I did. So you actually yes. wanted to buy a Mustang. I did. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, being young and in love, so Megan and I started dating at fourteen. So we had practically oh, wow. raised each other. That's awesome. And, um, and we put dating in quotation marks because at that point there were no cell phones, no internet. I mean, our dating consisted of meeting each other at church every Sunday. Yeah, and, and so dating was you know we use that term loosely, but since. 14 we had been together and i we got we're getting older and i was like hey like 16 17 16 17 exactly <laughs> much, yes. older. Practically much older grown. thinking yes. about social security yes. thinking yes. we were we were grown um and i i thought it would be a great idea to surprise this woman that i was hoping to marry by buying a brand new car because i could finally afford it and um so i went out ford had just came out with a brand new mustang body style in 2003 2004 and I didn't really tell her. Instead, I just went and picked it out and had to have my dad co-sign because I had no credit and really no money. And I couldn't afford it, but it was cool. And <laughs> I thought she would think it was really cool. And so I bought this car, drove to her house, and what I thought was going to be just this amazing, like, you know, show of gratitude. And you're so awesome. And you're the coolest guy ever. So glad I get to marry you one day, hopefully. Um, again, at 18. Instead, was complete opposite of... What 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 were you doing? What were you, what were you thinking when you bought this car? I did. You can't even afford rent. Why are you buying a car? And um, it really did not turn out the way I thought it was going to. Huh, you yeah. know, going back a minute, uh, you were kind of saying you're the uh, finance guy, and yeah. sounds like Megan <laughs> might have a good sense for finance here. She did. So my financial journey started then, <laughs> um, and that's what led to today because I had not thought a thing about money growing up. My parents were blue collar workers, great salt of the earth people. Be- people uh, but really lived paycheck to paycheck you know yep. gave a lot of money away and and just that was it they lived on overtime and that's how i was raised and um he also came from a large family there's nine children so i don't mm. know if you can necessarily save a lot when sure. you have yeah you got to stretch every dollar right. in that context yes you know I, I said a moment ago that money tends to be one of the top two three uh, points of conflict in marriage but you say couples really aren't arguing about money what are they arguing about for us, it's really about how they how people think about money and how we talk about money or the lack of talking about money. Um, and so a lot of times it's not so much that they spent the money on maybe the Mustang, in this case it was, um, <laughs> but or you know the Camaro or the Starbucks coffee. It's really that you didn't communicate to me about that or why you feel like you need X, Y, or Z. Um, that ends up causing a lot of problems in marriages. Why do you think budget is such a bad word in a marriage? Yikes, budget. I think that people see budget and think it's it's rules for them. They're adults. They're making the money. So why should I be given rules as to how I'm spending that money? Oh, that's insightful. Yeah, that's true. We don't like accountability, do right. we? Right. So you speak about money relationship. What What is a money relationship? Like me and my banker? <laughs> uh, a lot of, you know, you and your spouse. Uh, okay. you know, we, we talk about a lot with marriages in general, and, and we're big advocates of, of marriage conferences and investing in your marriage. And what a lot of people think is, oh, well, you know, we're having date night, and, you know, we are physically intimate, and, you know, we have time away, and we go on vacations, and we communicate. But it's really that money relationship that a lot of people just forget about. We, we don't bring up. Some of it's shame and guilt because we spent money we shouldn't have had, um, or we're hiding money that um, you know, we have or don't have. And so that, that 
money relationship really drives a big part of the trust that goes on between a husband and a wife. It's true. It kind of cuts through the fog. And if there's conflict there, there's something you need to work on, right? You knew an older couple. I think they've been married more than 40 years, if I remember correctly. And they had all this uh, kind of misery in their marriage, but they had plenty of money. So, you know, for the couple starting out, going, all we need is more money and we would be happier and have a better marriage. Doesn't always work that way, right? It does no, not. Absolutely not. I think so often everything comes back to communication. Not only if we have more money, we'll do better, but also some people think if we have a child, our marriage will be fixed. If we have a different job, if we have a new friend group, and it all comes back to communication. What happened in that man and his wife's situation? M- married 40 years and had lots of money, but they were yeah. miserable. Yeah, so what we found, you know, we were talking with this couple and had a great financial plan, had a lot of money compared to the majority of people, you know, that, that are out there, um, and came to us one day and said, hey, we're we're done. We're calling it quits. And I was like, hey, you're, you're in the prime of life, right? You're getting to enjoy, in theory, you get to enjoy retirement or about to enjoy retirement. Um, and what it came down to is she always wanted to see more money in the account. And he was felt confident in where they were. And, and so over the years, he would, you know, contribute less to his 401k when mm-hmm. she wanted him to contribute more. And it was just always kind of underlying there. And as they were getting closer and closer to retirement, she realized I wanted to see a bigger number there. Um, and even though as a their financial advisor or something like you're very safe you have a very safe nest egg here's all the you know the um the scenarios and everything everything looks really good she wanted to see more um and i don't know if it was really so much she wanted to see more as she just wanted to feel heard she wanted to feel um that he understood where she was coming from and, and he never took that approach yeah. he always just said look we're, we're putting back four percent it's enough we're putting back seven percent it's enough and never really explained maybe hey baby i understand you feel that way, how how can we come to an agreement here, right? Yeah. If, if we put five in instead of four and I could still use the other percentage on something else, um, they never really had those conversations. And ultimately, it led to them being divorced right when they were about to be able to really Seriously, enjoy retirement. they did divorce. They did. Oh, um, my goodness. That's a sad outcome. It is. Yeah, it's very sad. And, um, you know, a lot of it comes back to communication of where um, – and that really opened our eyes to why are couples feeling this way? There's something yeah. ingrained in us that – we think differently about money. Well, and part of it's talking about it. That's why we're talking about it today, because mm-hmm. we don't want you, the listener or viewer, to be in that spot, you know, be married 40 years and look at things differently and have this conflict where it's insurmountable. I mean, that's not the goal for us as Christians, particularly. You do something in this book, which I think is really good, and that's put personality to money types. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but let's talk about those five personality types and give a little description mm-hmm. to each one. Sure. So there are five um, money personalities that we have discovered, and that starts with we have a saver, spender, risk taker, security seeker, and also a flyer. Oh, I just like flyer already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a fun one. It sounds fun, right? Yeah, they, yeah. Are, they are really fun. Except you pay the piper. You do. Yeah. yeah. And so... Yes. Uh, after interviewing literally thousands of couples, right, and we've done this, um, we've identified these five different money personalities that are out there. I mean, a lot of people, when we talk about how you think about money, it's usually saver and spender, right? And that's right. usually where people stop. Yeah. Well, I'm a saver, she's a spender, and that's 
all it comes down to. Well, and every saver is a spender to a degree. To a degree. Because you got to spend right. money. you got to spend money. And, uh, uh, right. And then yeah. every spender has to hopefully save something. Yeah. And but. so what, what we've found is, is everybody has two money personalities, a primary and a secondary okay. that kind of okay. jump out, right? Um, that's how we put it. So Megan is a saver security seeker, and I tend to be a spender risk taker, which are two very opposite Total ways of thinking opposites. about money. We're already hearing conflict. <laughs> yes. 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 I've missed him from the Mustang, right? Ever since then. Yeah. That was a tell. Um, it was. Yeah. yeah very much so. Um, and so savers, you know, the, the very basic, they like to save money. They, like the woman in our story, she wanted to see the money in the account. Um, she yeah. wanted to see the hard dollars there. Um, didn't really care to see it in a rent house. She wanted to see it in the account. Um, and so savers... Meg is a great example of a saver. <laughs> yes. So I am a saver, and um, I'm also a tad bit of a security seeker. But as a saver, um, of course, like everyone knows, we love to save money. Taylor is very big on, well, we are saving money. We are putting money away by investing in this real estate or investing in land or different things. But for me, I want to see the money in the account. I want to know how much is in the account at all times. One of the things that definitely gives me away as a saver is I love to go out and have a good time, but it's going to be on a budget. Like me and the kids, every summer we like look at the movie theater schedule and see that they have a dollar summer movie club. <laughs> right. Now we have already watched all of these movies because they're from last year. Oh, so yeah. we've already oh, yeah. seen yeah. the movies, but we're going to go because I know for a dollar we can watch the movie, for a dollar we can get popcorn and soda, and we're going to have a great time. And to me that satisfies my little bit of spender, but also lets me know that we're having a great time and saving money at, at that time. Hey, help me understand how our faith, and this is really critical because, you know, you, you can be a good Christian and be a saver. Mm-hmm. You probably will pat yourself on the back maybe a little more than your spouse who may be a spender, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're still saved in Christ. Yeah. Right? Right. So how do we how do we recognize different personalities and then kind of pull some of those more outrageous attributes in a little bit to give them some discipline, I guess. Yeah, I think a lot of that starts with, you know, understanding what you're, how you think about money. Um, you know, we can say I'm a saver, I'm a spender, but in reality, if you, if you don't really know, if you haven't studied it or, or took the time, and we do have a, a free assessment online, um, it's fivemoneypersonalities.com, or you can go and take the assessment. That's great. Just takes a few minutes, um, dives into your money personality. And so we use that to, um, one, start the conversation. And, you know, all throughout the, the scriptures, there's examples of savers and spenders and flyers and, and all of these different money and personalities. And so once we know how we think about money um, and we're able to communicate that, it really opens up the communication between a, a, a husband and a wife. And so that's where we usually start is yeah. let's take the assessment, let's figure out where we are, and then let's utilize some resources that are at our disposal to communicate better. We find a lot of people want to have hard money conversations at the most inopportune times. Mm-hmm. You know, I come home because I'm a risk taker and I'm like, hey, I got this new business idea. Let's, you know, we're going to do this. And I walk in the door because I'm all excited about it. And Megan's sitting there trying to cook dinner. And, you know, the house is a wreck because the kids had just walked in from, you know, playing out outside and everything's just crazy. And I'm trying to throw this business idea at her. And it's like, hey, that's that's not the right time. Right? So that's, that's a whole different problem. Whole different Timing problem. Is a- Timing is a, is, a, is a very big problem. And so, um, but getting on that same page, yeah. understanding, hey, let's, let's find a time that works for both of us. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. 
Boost your marriage with advice, heartwarming stories, and more by listening to Season 7 of the Loving Well Podcast from Focus on the Family. I'm Erin Smalley, and I host this podcast with my husband, Dr. Greg Smalley. Join us as we chat about how to make time for each other, fun ideas for Valentine's Day, and what makes a marriage great. Listen to Loving Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your marriage can be redeemed, even if the fights seem constant, even if there's been an affair, even if you haven't felt close in years. No matter how deep the wounds are, you can take a step toward healing them with a Hope Restored Marriage Intensive. Our biblically-based counseling will help you find the root of your problems and face challenges together. We'll talk with you, pray with you, and help you find out which program will work best. Call us at 1-866-875-2915. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Let me let me ask you, we've, you know, saver spender, pretty obvious, risk taker, pretty obvious, security seeker, that's, you know, put it under your pillow, put it in the mattress kind of person, save, 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 and then that flyer. Flyer can be interesting because you're saying there it's, that person's not motivated by money but very content with life. Uh, big on relationships, happy to let someone else take care of the finances. That sounds like a committed Christian to me. It is, yes. <laughs> As a flyer. That's right. No, I just want to say, too, do some of these conflict? Like, I could see somebody, it's almost schizophrenic, but a spender security seeker. It is. Can so you have that combo? You can, yeah. And so what we say is you, everybody has a primary and a secondary, and that primary is is how you think about money 90-plus percent of the time. Right. So that's that's how you are day in, day out. And that secondary one pops up usually in times of stress, usually when you've had a bad day. And so um, we like to call it the backseat driver. Uh, it's like pumping, trying to pump the brakes on things sometimes. That's yeah. well, I'm thinking of somebody in the aisle going, buy it, don't buy it, buy it, yes. don't buy it. I mean, they're like, wow, what am I doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, typically, you know, when somebody's had a bad day and they say, man, I just, you know, I deserve to so have a good meal. comfort buying. Comfort buying. Okay. Yeah. Retail therapy is Retail therapy, <laughs> right. yes. Right. So those, you guys are so well educated out. in yeah. this. <laughs> um, moving to scripture, which is really critical. <laughs> you know, how does God see these personalities? I think Philippians 4 is a good place to ask this question where of course Paul's writing and says you know be content in every situation I've learned to be content if I have a lot or if I have a little Mm. Um, how do we find that contentment in a culture that is saturated with consumerism you know I think Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible and I think it speaks to that really well especially to today where you know we think oh if we have more money Oh, if we have this nicer car, oh, if we had more vacations, or, you know, we're, we're idolizing people we see on Instagram and, and social media. If we just had that, you know, we would be set. And this, you know, Ecclesiastes does an amazing job of saying, hey, I've had all this, right? Because had, I've had everything you can imagine, but it all comes down to our relationship with God, right? If we, if we keep him number one and, and really the center of all that we do, we can be content in all situations. Um, if we just give him our fears, our worries, our concerns, our joy, everything becomes a lot more in focus. Um, in your book, The Five Money Personalities, you address something called financial infidelity. I mean, that sounds like a big, hot word, infidelity, obviously. What's financial infidelity? You know, um, for us, financial infidelity comes from, one, a lack of communication, but 
when we think of infidelity, most people think of physical infidelity. And, and we don't think, well, financial, well, me spending this money and my spouse not knowing about it is not nearly as bad as me having some other type of an affair. Um, but in reality, a lot of those same emotions come up uh, when those when financial infidelity occurs. And so, you know, we, we talk about financial infidelity in a few different ways. So one being hidden expenses, right? Hidden credit card debt, hiding um, cash, mm. or even controlling. Yeah. So we worked with a couple one time where um, he, we're talking with them and he says, you know, I go through McDonald's for lunch sometimes and my wife will call me and say, hey, why did you get a large drink? And that just that controlling of money. And so financial fidelity can take a lot of different um, avenues, yeah. can pop up in a lot of different ways, but it, it does bring about a lot of the same insecurities, a lot of the same emotions that mm. other types of infidelity occur. In an unscientific way, when you look at the number of couples that you've talked about, it, it, I guess it's a little startling to me that um, what I imagine would be a, a fair number of couples that do have hidden accounts or money stashed away and they don't talk together as a couple about it. Is that pretty common? It is. So uh, statistically, we show about 65% of, uh, especially women, have a hidden credit card or hidden debt. What is that saying when they do that? I think that it stems from generations of um, women teaching the younger generation to have that mad money, that safety net, just in case something happens, that they'll have a little money set aside in case the marriage doesn't work out. I think that some of it stems from that. And then, of course, other, it also stems from um, the feeling of, I know better than he does. So he's spending the money in a way that I don't feel it should be spent. So in order to have that safety net, I'm going to have to take it upon myself to start saving away. Hmm. I was just going to say, that sounds like there's not communication again, right? Yes, it always boils down to communication. In that context, too, it kind of leads into that fear-based situation, which, again, is going to be one of the roots of division within the marriage, you Mm -hmm. know, for whatever reason. But certainly money will create that, especially fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. regarding money. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, I guess there'd be two ways of looking at that. You have insecurities, let me call it that, mm-hmm. and you've described that. What about the other side of that where we can't pay our bills, we have a lot of debt? Um, how do we balance that fear and lack of confidence with the security and peace of mind that God wants us to experience? I mean, you're in it. If you're in that well, yeah. that deep well, that pit, of debt and everything else, how, how do we overcome the fear of that and start working on getting rid of it? You know, for for me, I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of people are in debt and above, you know, in over their heads, um, and a lot of it comes from things that aren't biblical. You know, it's the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. And so, number one, we tell people if, if you're in that situation, the Bible makes it really clear we need to repent, right? We need to go to our heavenly Father and say, hey. I messed up, you know, I've, I've done wrong and realize that it wasn't some outside circumstances. It wasn't your neighbor that used your credit card, right? It was you. And, and we made those decisions as a couple or independently and really just come to that realization that, hey, we, we have failed. We're not blaming others. And let's get on the same page. Uh, we're, we're big proponents of we're on the same team. If you're in that pit of despair, a lot of times you got to realize, hey, we're on the same team. We got into this together. We're going to get out of it together um, and, and really sit down and work on that plan. But from an aspect of realizing we got ourselves into this. Well, and let me stress that point because what you're saying is, yeah, you're on the same team. But in this context, you can really be divided. Yeah. And that's not a healthy way to solve the problem uh, of how do we get out of debt. Uh, you 
talk about a money dump. Um, boy, it sounds like fun. Where can we go? Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> I don't think dump. that's what you're talking about. But it does sound like fun. But what's yeah. your version of the money dump? Yeah, so the money dump is is where we want couples to get together at least once a year, right? And we, we say once a year to really just dump it all out, right? Let's just get all the fears, all the insecurities, all the issues, all the worries out on the table. Let's just dump it on the table and let's con- let's. What does that sound it. like? Give me help between a husband and a wife. Um, for us, that means, hey, we're not going to have the kids around, right? Um, it's something that we've planned, and so we have thoughts together, so it's not spontaneous. You know, it's not bringing up a bunch of old fears or concerns. It's really, this is where I am right now, and this is why. Um, so we've thought about it. We've written out some ideas, and we're having a, a really good conversation about it. Huh. And so that money dump, it, it just helps to ignite the conversations, helps to keep the couple um, back on the same page. And, you know, some people say, well, that's only once a year. You know, you're, doing, you're only talking about money once a year. It's like, no, we also have a thing called the money huddle, um, which is where we recommend couples come together. They huddle up, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes a month and just say, hey, this is where we are. You know, we're, we're, we're moving in our budget. We're making progress. It's not an overnight thing. There's not a switch we can flip and everybody just become a millionaire. Um, it is a progress. And so uh, between the, the money dump and then moving toward a money huddle on a once a month basis, uh, it really helps keep those lines of communication. Well, open. I like those football analogies. It used to be playing in the street. You'd say, go buy the Chevy and turn around oh, yeah. and I'll hit you. Now we're saying, go buy the Chevy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different huddle. Yeah, a little different. Yeah, a little different. different. Uh, um, it's really important. Uh, we've said this already, but it uh, bears repeating, I think. Conflict about money in your marriage, it, it is inevitable. It's going to happen. I like that idea of getting out there and getting ahead of it and having these discussions. And that's what you mean by the money dump. When I was looking for those examples, it's like, honey, I think we're in a good place. Or, honey, maybe we're not. Do you feel the same way? That would be some of those discussions. Or maybe we're not saving enough. Or yeah. maybe we do need a dryer. How are we going to pay for that? Or something like that. Right. Matter of fact, I use that over. because we need a dryer right now. <laughs> yeah. That's where you would go over different goals for the family and things like that as well. Because typically, some of the goals aren't just going to come around without money involved in those goals. So that's where you would discuss also how much we're spending on the children's soccer lessons or private schools or whatever may come up. Yeah, and we've created some really great resources to help couples to open those lines of communication. And so uh, we have questionnaires that couples can use to help start that. It's just say, hey, this is the basis of this money dump, right? Yeah. Um, and really open lines of communication. And that's critical. I mean, I think that's what it's about. Uh, whether it's money, intimacy, faith, uh, having that open line of communication is critical. Obviously, we want you to pick this uh, book up, The Five Money Personalities. I think you'll love it. Uh, it's just really well done and you know, when you look again at the conflict in marriage and, and money being right at the top of the list or near the top of the list, why not attack it head on? And we want to get this into your hands. If you can make a gift of any amount, and if you can't afford it, ask us for the book because we understand you're in a money crunch. But if you can make a gift of any amount, five, ten dollars we'll send it as our way of saying thank you for being part of the ministry. And as I said, if you can't, we'll get it to you and trust others will cover the expense of that. I think it's one of those tools you need in your marriage arsenal so you can go to it and improve the communication in your marriage around money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and thanks in advance for your generosity. And please donate and request the Kovars book when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. 800-232-6459 or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. 
And we also mentioned our free marriage assessment, which is a great way to kind of get on the same page with your spouse about what's most important in your relationship, how things are, and maybe areas that you'd like to see some improvement in. Uh, Take it together and engage. Have some great conversations about this marriage assessment. We've got all the details on the website. Taylor and Megan, this has been really good. I so appreciate you making the time to be here, coming up from Texas and spending a little time with us. I hope many, many couples are helped through your great advice. Thanks. Thank you all. Thank you so much for having us. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith building program for your family. Stay tuned. As a parent, it's easy to find myself sitting backseat to my kids in the back seat. It's tough to be a step ahead, and full honesty, I'm pretty hard on myself when that happens. But I've found Practice Makes Parent, a podcast from Focus on the Family, hosted by Dr. Danny Huerta and Rebecca St. James. It helps me be more intentional and not feel alone when things get tough. Everything they share is practical and well-practiced, and I can use it right away. Listen to Practice Makes Parent wherever you get your podcasts. For Jesus, often real ministry was the person he found standing in front of him. And so sometimes we need to ask ourselves, who is that for me today? Is it a toddler who's asking me to fill their sippy cup for the 10th time that day? Is it my neighbor who's grieving? Is it my coworker? Who's standing in front of me? Not not worrying about the thing, the great grand thing I'm on my way to do, but knowing when God's kind of tapping me on the heart saying, stop, notice this person, especially notice that person who least expects to be seen. That's what Jesus did. That's Karen Eman, and she'll have more insights about how you can better love God and love people on today's Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Fuller. John, uh, kindness, when it's received, is rarely forgotten by that person. It's one of the great secrets of loving your neighbor. Um, very few people, I've never met anybody that's been harassed into the kingdom of God. You know, I'll say it in an audience, has anybody been beaten or verbally harassed into the kingdom of God? Never once has a hand gone up. You know, those Christians treated me so poorly, I became one of them. Hmm. It's usually unusual love and kindness that opens a crusty heart to the possibility that God is. And today, we're going to expand on that and talk about Um, Listen, Love, and Repeat, a great book by one of our favorite guests, Karen Eman. And uh, let's set it up with 1 John 4, 12. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And that should be the cry of each of our hearts, that God's love would abide in us and that others would come into relationship with God because of the love they experience from us which is from the Father. Mm. Yeah, and Karen Eman works for Proverbs 31 Ministries. She has three adult children and has written a number of books. Jim, you mentioned the title of Listen, Love, and Repeat. The subtitle is Other-Centered Living in a Self-Centered World, and uh, it's good to have Karen back. Karen, welcome. Thanks for having me. I always love you. you got such a big smile and just uh, you know, great, great outlook on life. Um, 
speak to this issue of the way love seems to be growing cold in the culture. It seems like there's a lot of influences working against our spirit, the spirit of God in us, to show love to other people, especially people we disagree with. Why? I sometimes wonder if it's always been that way, but we just have better ways of documenting it now with social media. You know, we sling our unsolicited opinion, and it's not just our neighbor across the picket fence that hears us sling our unsolicited opinion about something or be snarky about something. Everyone on our Facebook wall sees it. Everyone on our Twitter or wherever sees it, and it it grows. People jump on, and they give their unsolicited two cents worth, and now we're in an all-out war slinging hate rather than being kind and loving to other people. You talk about a story in the book, uh, Listen, Love, Repeat, about your mom and what she taught you in this regard. What did your mom teach you about love? My mom and I are extremely opposite personalities. She's very quiet and shy and hangs in the background, and I'm just always yakking a mile a minute, you know? But one thing I saw in her life that I wanted to emulate was just the way that she put other people first. You can't get her to talk about herself. She just wants to know about you and what's going on with you. And she had an uncanny ability to just really listen to people and then respond with with something that was kind, some little piece of information she tucked away, like maybe it was just their favorite candy bar or something. And if her coworker was having a bad day, guess what? That favorite candy bar was left with a cute little note on their desk. You know, she just always was on the lookout for how she could make someone else's she day was better. Thoughtful. She was very thoughtful. And I remember one time in middle school going to her because I would, I don't know, I was upset about something. It's probably. middle school. Yeah, it's middle school. <laughs> There's something to be upset about every day. I probably didn't get invited to a slumber party or something. <laughs> and I was all down on my life. And I, I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, you know, whenever you think your life is just not going well, you're depressed about something, remember this. There's always someone out there who has it worse off than you. Go find that person and make their day. And somehow, I'm promising you, honey, it'll make yours as well. And I saw my mom, who was a single mom, living on a budget so tight it squeaked. She never seemed down on her life. She was always so other-centered and thinking about how she could make someone else's day that she just seemed to be very content with her life. That's amazing. In fact, in the book, you talk about heart drops. And that was probably the beginning of the formulation of that. Expand on the definition of heart drops and tell our listeners what you meant. Yeah, it's something my mom was doing, but I never had a name for it until I was in a small group with my husband and our our group leader, Michael, talked about hearing a heart drop. And a heart drop is a way of kind of listening between the lines when someone's saying something, because they're saying something without saying it. Maybe you're talking about some medical tests that you have next Thursday, and I sense a little bit of concern in your voice. Well, I can remember that. I can pull out my notes app on my phone or write something down in my planner that says, hey, you know, there's these tests happening next Thursday. Maybe I should text you that morning and say, hey, I'm praying for you or call that night and say, how did it go? You know, kind of listening between the lines, but also just recording seemingly insignificant pieces of information about someone and just asking God to bring that back to your mind in the future sometime when you might want to use it to encourage them. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who sent her only child off to college, and I knew she was going to have a hard day that day that the the school bus pulled up for high school and her son had been dropped off the night before about an hour and a half away at college. And I had been with her probably six months before that when she gave her very high-maintenance coffee order at the (laughs) coffee house, and I'd gone down and I put it in my phone. So that morning, I showed up when her child was gone to school, 
with her favorite coffee drink and a box of Kleenex. And I said, I'm here for you. If you want to cry, you can cry on my shoulder. And I handed her the drink and she said, oh, what'd you bring me? A mocha? And I said, no, I brought you a, and I rattled off her high maintenance coffee order. 102 (laughs) degrees. No. (laughs) Extra whip, double cupped, blah, blah, this whole thing. And she said, how did you know? And I said, because silly, I wrote it down the last time we were together. (laughs) So just listening for those little emotions in people's voices or those seemingly insignificant pieces of information, and then later on doing something to bless them. Wow, how amazing that would be in marriages for each of us as spouses to be that attuned to the little things between the lines. Mm -hmm. Um, Throughout Scripture, Jesus modeled um, never being too busy for others. I think you can see that clearly. He moved through the the crowds, and people grabbed at him. He healed people. He came away to what seems to be to recharge himself and to pray and to do those things, but he seemed available. Um, How did you relate that? to our days today? How do we become available in the hectic, busy life that we all have today? Yeah, it's interesting when you read through the gospel accounts, often Jesus was on his way to do something big and grand, (laughs) but he would stop and take time to notice just one simple person, whether it was the woman with the issue of blood who needed healing, but he was on his way to do this miracle, you know. Um, He felt her. But he stopped. Yeah, Yeah, he felt her. He stopped. He noticed her. I heard it said once, and I wish I could remember who said it, because it's been a couple decades ago now. But That means you said it. No, I didn't. (laughs) But I was listening to a preacher on the radio. I wish I could remember who. And he said this, that for Jesus, often real ministry was the person he found standing in front of him. Wow. And so sometimes we need to ask ourselves, who is that for me today? Is it a toddler who's asking me to fill their sippy cup for the 10th time that day? Is it my neighbor who's grieving? Is it my coworker who I feel like maybe something's not right with them and they're upset about something? Who's standing in front of me, not not worrying about the thing, the great grand thing I'm on my way to do, but knowing when God's kind of tapping me on the heart saying, stop, notice this person, especially notice that person who least expects to be seen. That's what Jesus did. Hey, in your resource, um, Listen, Love, Repeat, um, I'm always looking as I read through the books and the material for profound questions. And you remind people of the two reasons that they're here on earth. When you see that written down, you're going, okay, what are they? Because I want to know, are they the two I would agree with? And uh, tell us what those are from your perspective. The woman who first told me about Jesus was the one who said this to me. She said, Karen, there are so many things you can do where you're here on earth, and there are a lot of really great things, very admirable things you can aspire to do. But when it all boils down, there are two reasons we're here on earth, to have a relationship with God who offers us a place in heaven and to take as many people as we can with us, to tell them about the gospel so that they too can enjoy God forever in heaven. That's what it all boils down to. When you are dead and gone— Nothing else really matters in eternity. It doesn't matter what kind of house you had or what kind of car you drove or mm. how many accolades you racked up for yourself in your profession. Really, none of that matters anymore in eternity. All that matters is your relationship with God and your relationship with others as you point them to having a relationship with you God. Know, one of the five pillars we have here at Focus is that pillar of evangelism. And uh, we need to remind people that if you don't know the Lord, and there are many that listen to Focus on the Family that don't know the Lord. They like good marriage and parenting advice. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, what Karen is saying there is so true. It's frivolous. I mean, life is about knowing God and then walking with him in this life so that you can help others and you can enjoy a fruitful 
existence. If you're not there, call us. Man, we have counselors. We have resources to help walk you through what a decision for Jesus means. And we would want to start right there. It's the building block for everything you're trying to do right with your family, your marriage, your parenting. So call us or contact us if you're in that spot. You don't know the Lord. You don't know what language we're speaking right now. Let us introduce you to him. This is Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. I'm John Fuller, and uh, get in touch with us when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or connect with our counseling team at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. We'll be right back after this. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him. Disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Karen, also in the book, there were some heavy uh, emotions that you expressed. One is when you had a miscarriage and a friend of yours did something that meant so much to you. What happened? I got a lot of uh, phone calls and cards and well wishes from people hoping you know, that I would get through this tough time. But I had a friend who just showed up at my door with a box of Kleenex and some Godiva chocolate, I think it was, and just sat and let me talk and let me cry. She didn't try to fix it. She didn't try to say, oh, well, you know, probably something was going to be wrong with the baby anyway. It's a blessing that, you know, some of these things that people said where they thought they were helping me, but yeah. they weren't. Well-intentioned. But yeah, very well-intentioned, but it hurt my heart. I, I didn't want to hear, you know, why I was suddenly supposed to be happy about this because I was stuck in my sorrow. And she just sat with me in the pain, didn't say a whole lot other than, you know, this is awful, and I know how it feels because I was there too, and I just want to be with you. Karen, so often as human beings, especially in a modern culture, um, how you doing? Doing great, and their marriage is falling apart. The point I want to make is how do you develop a heart, a skill set, whatever you want to call it, to be able to sit with somebody who's grieving? Because it's kind of uncomfortable. You don't necessarily know what to say. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You can tie yourself up into knots to where you say, well, it's just easier not to go. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have to be a comforter? Mm. I think we just have to be very honest with that person and say, I don't know what to say. (laughs) I don't know what to do. I just know I love you. And this is not good. What has happened, I hurt for you. My heart just can't stop thinking about this tragedy you've gone through, this loss you've suffered, but I don't know like all of the right slick things to say. I just want you to know I love you. And I not only want to know what do you need, what can I do for you, but just go ahead and do some things. You know, if you know that they have a child that still needs to go to their t-ball game, but they just lost their parent and they're grieving, just say, hey, and I want to let you know, next two weeks, I'm on t-ball schedule. I'm taking your child to t-ball. You know, it's an important thing to capture. And for me, you know, I had a hard life growing up as orphan kid and all that kind of stuff. And one of the failures I can have is kind of the pick up yourself by your bootstraps attitude. So I don't always convey enough heart, you know, because I'm like, hey, you can get through it. I got through it. It sounds horrible, mm-hmm. but you can default to that if mm-hmm. you came up that way and you had a rough life. Um, 
It's like, come on, you can do it. I know you can do it. I remember one time talking to Jean, and she was suffering through something with her family, and and I I think I even may have said that. I just said, come on, we got to move forward. And she just looked at me in a tender way and just said, Jim, not everybody can pick themselves up by their bootstraps and go. And I'm one of those kind of people. Man, it hit me like a wow. brick. And you got to develop a sensitivity. And you're talking about being wired for relationship. That's the amazing thing here as you describe what you're uncovering and listen, love, and repeat is how God has wired our heart for people if we move into it, not away from people. He demonstrated it. He wanted us to move toward people. And it's one of the signs of a healthy believer that you're willing to to be engaged with people in their grief. Mm -hmm. Life's messy. We want to grow spiritually, but sometimes we just want that to be just us and God alone. You know, give me my Bible and my journal, and I'm going to grow spiritually. Yeah. And I'm just going to be this giant of the faith because I just know all the right Bible verses, and I just can quote them to you. But really, I've seen the most growth in my walk with the Lord as that's been fleshed out in my relationship with others, whether it's family members, friends, you know, the grumpy neighbor who I don't really want to have a relationship with, but God's calling me to continue Hey, when you're making banana bread for the other neighbors, don't forget Mr. Grumpy Pants. That's how I'll refer to him. And That's I've, a true believer. Yeah. and I can do that? But really, to see that it's about relationship when we talk yeah. about spiritual growth. Our walk with God includes walking alongside with others who are having a difficult time, encouraging the timid and the weak, learning from others who, you know— can do something better than we can and being humble to learn and to take their advice. All of these relationships that are kind of our horizontal relationships here on earth can help us grow in our vertical relationship with God. Well, and that's a great uh, word picture to put in our hearts and our minds. You share how giving our time, and you kind of alluded to that a moment ago, giving of our time is a great gift for people. It's probably the possession that is the most precious. If you are sitting or laying in your deathbed at 85, 90, looking back, time is all of a sudden worth far more than gold or riches. It's time. And uh, you have a story of a friend attending your father-in-law's funeral that caught your heart. What happened? My father-in-law passed away. He was from a town about two and a half, three hours from me. So I didn't know a lot of people in his town. There were some that I knew. But for the most part, as I stood at the funeral home with my husband and his siblings and his mom, who were all grieving, I didn't know many people there. I was just trying to do my thing as a a daughter-in-law of the man that was lying in the casket. And all of a sudden, I saw a familiar face walk in, and it was my friend Mary. And she was from several hours and two states away, and she had taken the time, made sure her three kids were cared for, her husband helped with this um, too, and she had taken the time to drive all the way there to be with me. When she could have easily just sent a card, and not that it's great to send a card, to have a phone call, all of that, but to really carve out an entire day to just come there and give me a hug and say, I know you're going to miss him too, because I was really close to him. It, it meant something to me. It was just so out of the ordinary because I was trying to be strong for my family I saw grieving, my extended family mm-hmm. on my husband's side, but I was grieving too because, boy, I'm going to miss his grilled chicken. He was great <laughs> at grilling out chicken. He was great at making making me feel like I was one of his daughters, even though I was just his daughter-in-law. And seeing her face and knowing how much time that cost her and organizational skills to get it all planned out and to lose a whole day of her life just to come and drive. It was about a probably six or seven hour round trip for yeah. her to do that. But I mean, she it did. meant a lot to it you. Did. Yeah. Sometimes I think we underestimate the impact of presence Mm -hmm. might mean to somebody. Mm -hmm. 
So he said, well, it won't be that. They won't miss us. I mean, who are we to them? We're not family. How do you override that rationalization to do the right thing? I just think back to, in my life, the people that have actually physically paused their life to do something for me rather than just send a card or a gift card. I mean, those things are great, but they're kind of easy to do. But the things that mean the most to me is when somebody really takes time to think through either some clever gift they're giving me for my birthday or or just a way to come and be present with me when I am going through something. I think back to how much that meant to me, and it kind of snaps my brain into attention to realize that's going to mean that that much more you know, to this person I'm trying to reach out to. Don't take the easy way out all the time and just give the phone call or the text message. Sometimes I need to put my own agenda on hold to go and spend time with that person because I'm remembering how much it meant to me when someone did that to me. Mm-hmm. Well, apart from praying, Karen, how can we prioritize maybe some first steps to really living out this? And I love the principle that your mom helped you start to develop here, which is don't just think about somebody that needs something, do something for that person. But I'm busy. I got so much going on and and I know so many people. How do I get to a point of saying, there's the difference maker for that person? That's where I start. I do think it starts with praying that God will tap you on the heart when there's someone you're supposed to notice. Hmm. So you pray that. Then you got to record it well. You've got to, you know, write down your friends having medical tests next week or so and so's high maintenance coffee drink or whatever. Just, <laughs> just living. I call it living alert. Just really living alert and not trying to frantically write everything down you see every day, but just knowing when God's saying, "Psst, that person over there, that thing they just said, write it down." Remember it. And then asking him to bring that to your attention later. And sometimes, you know, I was talking about my friend Mary. I call her my freaky friend because my kids say this because sometimes something will happen and I'm just so upset. I'm now throwing myself on my bed and crying for 45 minutes and the phone will ring and it will be Mary. And she will say, I've had you on my heart for the last 45 minutes. What's going on? She's like my freaky friend, but she has asked (laughs) Jesus, please help me to walk so closely with you that I know when you're tapping me on the heart and saying, psst, so-and-so might be having a bad day. So just asking him, and he's faithful. He'll do it. That's like the mustard seed becoming the big tree, right? That little faith impacting someone's life in such a profound way. It doesn't always um, end in a positive way. You had a story about a neighbor, I think, nine doors down. Uh, what happened in that situation? What did you learn from it? Mm-hmm. I had moved into a new neighborhood. My husband and I were trying to get to know some of the neighbors, and there was one woman who I saw often outside either watering her flowers or rolling her trash can to the curb. And I kept feeling like when I was on my walk, you know, with my Jesus music blaring in my iPod, in my earphones, I kept feeling like God was saying, hey, you should stop and get to know her. But I had stuff to do. I'm busy. I got kids. I, you know, I just needed to get going. And I, I probably ignored that nudge a half a dozen times or more. And then one day I was in town getting groceries or something, and I came back to my neighborhood and I saw that there were sirens and a fire engine. And first I panicked because my 12-year-old was home alone and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what did he burn? He probably burned the house down. That's a good mom response. Yeah, but when I got in the neighborhood, I saw that it was at this neighbor's nine doors down. And I thought, well, maybe there'd been like a false alarm because I didn't see any flames coming or anything. Well, I realized uh, just a few hours later when another neighbor called me to tell me what happened that she had taken her own life. She had put the garage door down, turned the car on, and sat in the car 
decided life wasn't worth living, mm. living anymore. And I can't beat myself up for that and think, oh, if I'd only stopped, I could have saved her from killing herself. But it did make me think, you know, what if? Like, what if? Because we were starting a neighborhood Bible study at that time, and I could have invited her. I could have, you know, tried to introduce her to God. You know, and I, it's awful <laughs> to get to know your neighbor through the tears of her relatives at a memorial service. And that's how I got to know her, by talking to her children. What a statement. I mean, that's an amazing statement you just made. Yeah. So yeah. pay attention to those nudges. Um, a practical application, which I found very helpful. Yeah, you called it the necessary people. Uh, it's a beautiful way to recognize right in front of you somebody who's doing something that might need, should get a little recognition from you. Describe it. Necessary people are those people who help us get life done. They bring us our mail. They make our high-maintenance coffee order. They teach our children. They bag our groceries. They do our dry cleaning. They, you know, preach the sermon on Sunday. They're all necessary to us to help us get our life done. So I like to ask myself, you know, what can I do for those people to show them God's love? You know, the old golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, I'll think, if I were a mail carrier, what would I want done to me? Maybe on a hot day? I might want a nice icy cold glass of lemonade given to me when I bring the mail to somebody on my Definitely. route. Definitely. Yeah. And so just these little simple ways that you can thank them for the job they do for you all year long. And I'm not just talking about at Christmas giving fruitcake to the mail carrier, or the teachers or whatever. Please, I, please. I, not I'm sorry. Fruit, you not haven't had cake. my fruitcake. You have not had my fruitcake. <laughs> I think my there's only one good. and it just gets passed from one household <laughs> to the next. You know what's going to happen. She's going to write no. down oh, on yeah, her phone, Jim wants fruitcake. No, Jim I wants would never cake. look a fruitcake in the mouth. But uh, I might give it to you, John. But uh, your family uh, actually did something for one of those necessary people in your life. Uh, Mr. Brown, I think his name was, and he was your mailman. Yeah, we actually threw a Mr. Brown day. Me and, and all <laughs> yeah. my little kids, what we jumped out, like? we threw confetti, and we at had at the mailbox. At, yeah, when he came up, and we said, "Surprise! It's Mr. Brown, best mailman in town." Today is officially Mr. Brown day, and our little kids had gotten like a squirt gun for him to ward off the dogs, and we made him cookies and and <laughs> had lemonade, and it was cute. And he walked on his way, and I didn't think too much about it. But you know what? About a week later, I heard the pit pat pit pat of his feet coming up the walk. And I said, hello, Mr. Brown, how are you today? And I'll never forget it. It was a sunny day. He had on sunglasses. He took off his sunglasses. He kind of dropped his head for a minute, shook his head. And then he looked up at me, visibly choked up. And he said, do you know what? I have been a mailman on this street for 33 years. And no one's ever done anything like what your family did for me. Thank you. Wow. for Mr. Brown Day. And it's not because our family is all that great. It took us eight years to think of the idea. But no. he said, you know, people remember me at Christmas, but no one ever stopped their life on a random Tuesday afternoon and said, thank you for faithfully serving our family all year long. Well, Karen, that is a perfect place for us to end today. What a wonderful example of things that you can do to, to express the love of God in people's lives. And if we just slow down for a minute, you can see it right in front of you. And uh, I love that admonition that you have given us in your book, Listen, Love, Repeat, How to Love Those Around You. And uh, there's no excuses. You don't want to stand in front of the throne of the Lord and say, well, I've got a couple excuses why I didn't do that. You took care of Mr. Brown, and I think it makes God smile. This has been great. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. 
And that's how we concluded our conversation with Karen Eman on today's episode of Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. And we'd certainly recommend that you follow up on this important topic by getting Karen's book. Uh, We'll send you a copy when you make a donation of any amount to Focus on the Family today. Uh, Make a monthly pledge if you can, or a one-time gift, and uh, we'll send the book to you. That's our way of saying thank you for joining us to help produce programs like this one and provide resources like our counseling team and so much more. Your generosity is the fuel we need to strengthen and support hundreds of thousands of couples who contact us for marital help each year. Donate today and request your copy of the book, Listen, Love, Repeat, when you call 800 the letter A and the word family. That's 800-232-6459 or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. As a parent, it's easy to find myself sitting backseat to my kids in the back seat. It's tough to be a step ahead. and full honesty, I'm pretty hard on myself when that happens. But I've found Practice Makes Parent, a podcast from Focus on the Family, hosted by Dr. Danny Huerta and Rebecca St. James. It helps me be more intentional and not feel alone when things get tough. Everything they share is practical and well-practiced, and I can use it right away. Listen to Practice Makes Parent wherever you get your podcasts.